Well, our reading comes from Romans chapter 16 this morning. We come to our second last uh, section of the book of Romans, and we're going to take in most of the chapter this morning, and then in two weeks' time, uh, we'll finish it off just before Advent uh, begins. So, Romans chapter 16, and we're reading from verse 1. In closing his letter, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kenkrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca, Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord Tryponea and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologos, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipaster, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greets you. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to him for it this morning. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Loving God, we give you thanks that you do come and save us. Lord, that we are able to sing that great confession, the core of who we are, and sing it with joy, knowing that in saving us, you draw us into your family. Lord, you expect us to go and live in light of that salvation. And so we thank you this morning, Lord, for your word, the means by which we are transformed. We are taught the way that we should go. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we gather before it. 
Lord, have us be humble and submit ourselves to what you have said through the Apostle Paul. And Lord, we ask that you might bless us richly this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The world around us is committed, it seems, to one thing at the moment, or at the very least, the society around us is committed to one thing, and that seems to be to break our society, our culture, into smaller and smaller groups. And we talked a little bit about that last week, about this real need that there seems to be in Western society to be part of a really small, tight group of people so you know exactly what your place in society happens to be. And it can be on any number of things, skin color, language, culture, uh, gender, and so on. All of these things serve to make us not one society altogether, but loads and loads of tiny little discrete groups, all with different levels uh, of influence and power and ability to speak to what's going on in the world around us, uh, depending on, on where you fit on that scale. And I don't know about you, but I've often wondered why. Why do we live in a time where to say that you are um, British or a member of the United Kingdom or Scottish or wherever it might be that you're from, to say that is somehow a bad thing. To say that you are a Christian is somehow a bad thing. What, what you need to do is be part of a very tightly defined group. To, to say that you are Scottish or British is horribly nationalistic, and we should shy away from that. That just speaks to how insular and, and so on you must be, that you don't want to be European or a citizen of the world or whatever it might be. The reason, I think, is that there is to be power found in splintering society into smaller and smaller groups. Society is far easier to control if it's not one big group of people, but it's lots of little groups. Because if you can convince people that they're part of a small and relatively insignificant group, then they don't really have any desire to do or say anything. The answer is almost always power. Divide and rule is not something that human generals or emperors invented as they sought to conquer other nations and lands. It has been the work of Satan since the very beginning. Divide God's people from him. Divide them from one another. Have Adam and Eve in two discrete little groups of one and have them both separate from God. And you can have influence over the whole thing. You win, is his thought. In our culture, if you divide a group of people away from the large mass of a society, you get to control that group. You get to say whether they have value or not, whether they get to speak in this public sphere or not, whether their opinions should count for anything, whether they're allowed to do the things that they want to do, even in their own homes. And if you have enough of these little groups under your control, you control everything. Look at the bowing and scraping that our politicians have to do to every big name behind a cause in society at the moment. If you say one wrong thing about a group of people, it doesn't matter who that group is, it just has to be a discrete, distinct group, all of a sudden, the whole of, of, of that group and all of their friends are allied against you. And immediately upon saying one wrong thing, you have to issue apology after apology 
in a society that doesn't understand what repentance is and doesn't know what to do with an apology when you give one. Look at the bowing and scraping that our big companies have to do before environmental groups who are actually, when you look at them, fairly small in number. Or groups that are behind of advocacy for certain um, sections of our society, LGBT crowd and so on, are, are one of the most notable, that the biggest corporations in the world will give millions of pounds to groups, advocacy groups, just to be seen to be on the right side of history. They don't mean half the things that they say when they make these great statements about how they support this or that or the other, but they know they must show deference or they'll be finished. They've been isolated into a little group, and so they've been controlled. Disunity is a tremendously powerful tool if you want to control people, the way they think, what they say, how they behave, the way they spend their money. And this is true in Paul's day as it's true in ours. And the danger of this was as keenly felt by Paul for the church in his day as it is for us today. The church stands in the face of all of that. There is a far more powerful tool at our disposal that will see the world brought in submission to God to worship Him rather than break down and fall apart in rebellion as it's doing now. We sometimes look at our society and think, it's just all going to bits. It's all falling apart. There is no hope. What can the church possibly do as our nation slides further and further away from the Christian heritage that we think it once had? Well, Paul tells us that we have hope because he speaks to a church that is, in the scope of the Roman Empire, tiny and insignificant, and yet Paul clearly believes they have the power to change the world around them, and they do. They transform the whole of the Roman Empire, and not just the Roman Empire, but the whole of the rest of the world, the world today as we see it. The church is here because of what these believers did 2,000 years ago. Christ used them powerfully, and so it would pay for us to listen to what Paul has to say in these closing words in Romans chapter 16. Paul begins this chapter by sort of wrapping up what he's written by by greeting people that he knows. And sometimes we can read chapter 16 as most of the last chapters of Paul's letter and just sort of dismiss it because it's just a great list of slightly tricky to pronounce names. And, And really, what is there to be found in that? They're fellow workers and there are people that Paul wants to mention by name and we don't know these people. We might meet them one day in glory, but we certainly can't meet them now. They've been dead for 2,000 years. So what difference does it make? But Paul lists these members because he is speaking to his family, a group that is united together despite the fact they all come from a huge variety of different places and stages in life and levels in society and so on. It is not for the church to take part in this sort of stratifying of society that says, I come from this place at this time. I'm of this age, this gender, this whatever. Therefore, my opinion counts here and your opinion counts there and somebody else's opinion counts up there. Paul lists these members of his family in verses 1 to 16 and then 21 and 23 to 23 because they are the family of Christ. And the list of names is really quite telling. 
We have a, a mixture of Jewish names and Greek names and Roman names all in together. There is no distinction between them, despite the fact in Roman society that would definitely have um, put them into different levels and layers as to who was more important and who was less important. We find that for all that they are all different, we see a wealthy patron who financially supports the church, Phoebe. We have, who is also possibly a, a deacon in the church, certainly a servant to the church in Kencrea, and Paul is asking the church in Rome to receive her and give her what she needs to carry on the work that she's doing. The church always needs financial support, and it needs people like Phoebe who appear to be wealthy and support the church through their financial giving, supported Paul through her uh, giving as well. We have important co-workers in the gospel. We have Prisca and Aquila, as well as a great laundry list of other people who have come along and labored alongside Paul or to the same end that Paul is laboring. And so they're preaching and teaching with clear skill and ability, and Paul identifies them not as apprentices or as people who are doing an okay job, but he's going to be coming to do it all properly. He says that they're his co-workers. They labor alongside the great evangelist of the first century, and Paul doesn't seem to make any real distinction between them as to the quality, the value of their work for all that he's an apostle. We see he greets Rufus and Rufus's mother, who was a mother to me in the passage, and I love that. I think that's fantastic that Paul mentions that in the closing part of one of the most favored of his letters in the New Testament. It's not his biological mum, but it's somebody who he values. It's the kind of person you find in every church that acts as a spiritual parent to those who come along behind them, who need that nurture and care, need somebody looking out for them, because quite often they're not looking out for themselves. And Paul certainly doesn't look out for himself. He goes without food and water. He goes without sleep. He gets thrown in prison, beaten up, starved, and, and so on. He's not looking after himself. He needs someone in the church that's checking in with him saying, have you eaten enough? You're looking awfully thin. You haven't slept in days. You need to take time away for yourself. We see people from all levels in society that are normal citizens, that are members of the aristocracy and their family members. We have the family of Aristobulus, who is quite well known outside of uh, the Bible, not a Christian, but his family clearly had become Christians, quite well known. Herodian, somebody of the, the family, the household of Herod, who were very close with the Roman emperors. And the Herod that we read of in the Gospels, who has John the Baptist beheaded, um, if he didn't go to school with the current Caesar at the time, he was certainly in that crowd, in that circle. They were very close together. Members of his household are greeted here. Narcissus's family, again, somebody who is well known outside of Scripture. We know who this person was. Members of his family um, are mentioned here. These are big-name people. We find Erastus, the city treasurer. That's not an insignificant position in a city like Rome. Extremely significant. Paul lists them all together with Mary, who's worked hard for you. Who's Mary? We've got no idea who that woman was, but we know she worked hard. We have 
Ampliatus, who's just my beloved in the Lord. Urbanus, my fellow worker, my beloved Stachys. Paul loves these people. We've got no idea whether they were unemployed, whether they were uh, manual laborers, whether they were aristocrats. We, We don't know, but Paul just piles them all together as if there's no real difference between any of them, because there isn't. They've all got different roles to perform, different roles to fulfill, but they're all one in Jesus, and Paul talks about them like that. And I don't know about you, but as I look at the state of our society, this gives me a tremendously warm feeling about the church. Because together, it doesn't make a difference who you are in this family. What matters is that you belong to this family, that you know Jesus. And you can be a member of parliament or somebody who's unemployed. You might wonder if there's any difference between those two kinds of people, but but you know what I mean. It makes no real difference. Whatever society says, we share, we care, we love one another, we build one another up, we serve each other, and everyone's work is valued not because of who they are in and of their own position, but because of their connection to Jesus. When you look at the list of people, you see they all serve together. They risk their necks for the sake of sharing the gospel, says, along with me. They were fellow prisoners. They funded the growing church. They served all the Gentile churches. Everyone should be grateful to these men and women. They worked hard for you. They're fellow workers. They're equal to Paul. He doesn't set himself up as the higher standard. They're Christ's family, and he loves them, and he mentions them all by name and they love each other. Paul says that they are to greet one another with a holy kiss. This is a greeting that's expected between people who genuinely care for, love, and respect one another. It's not something that we're going to implement after the service uh, this Sunday. I know there are some churches that have done that in the past and make for a tremendously awkward time uh, during a worship service. We're not going to do that this morning, but this is just a warm, familial greeting. We're all in this together. We love each other. We care each other. So, Paul says, show it. Give evidence to the fact that you love each other. Do this when you meet together. Greet one another warmly. It doesn't matter how high-born or low-born you are. It doesn't matter if you have showered that morning or the poor guy who doesn't have a home to live in hasn't showered for the last month. You come together, you love each other, and you show that. You're saved. You're part of my family in Rome. You're part of Christ's family over the world. And it's great to be together. Isn't it good to be part of the church, a church like this, where you can come and know that you'll be accepted regardless of how you talk, regardless of what you've done with your life, regardless of the way that you see the world and you get things wrong and you say things wrong all the time and none of that ultimately matters because these people will be with you and love you and care for you and allow you to do the same for them because we're all together in Jesus. In a society that is fragmenting faster and faster and smaller and smaller, this is what we need in our world, desperately. The challenge before us is how do we see it worked out? Because we're small and the world's big and it seems like the whole world is pushing against the church, so what do we do? Well, Paul's writing to exactly the same kind of situation. And Paul ultimately makes it clear. You just live this out. 
You don't need to take over government. You don't need to control the army or get all of your people into the treasury to make sure the money goes to the right place or whatever else it is. None of that's bad, but that's not how we do it. We live it out here so that we see it and we're built up by it and we go out and tell other people when they come and see it and experience it. That's how it works. This is how the church grows. This is how God builds His church, through it embodying the relationship He has with us. Love and kindness and grace and mercy. Now, I know that we've all met people in the church that are always worried that Christians get a big head, and so they're very keen, as soon as you've been built up, to just slide the legs out from under you and say, you know, well, that one thing was good. There were some people that didn't like it. Or, well, you know, there were these problems or whatever it is. I don't know why we do that, but there is a tendency to do that. Paul doesn't do that here, and Paul's not frightened about telling people they've got it wrong, is he? Most of his letters have something in it about how his readers have got something wrong. He's not shy. But Paul doesn't worry about building people up. He's not concerned that Mary is going to get a big head because the apostle Paul said she works hard. He wants her to know that it's great that she works hard. And he wants everybody else to know that she works hard. Because this is how we build one another up so that we're inspired to go and continue to work hard. It's not that people should do it for the thanks, but people need to be thanked sometimes. And people need to be told they're doing well. Sometimes they need to be told they're not doing well. But we can only do that. We only have the right to do that. If we've spent time with them, telling them how much we love them and appreciate them so that when the harsh words need to be said, they take it the right way. Paul takes the time to say, tell Rufus's mum I'm asking for her because she's been like my mum. doesn't say anything about her theology. Nothing about her understanding of the atonement, nothing on her views on baptism, because obviously she was a good Baptist, as all the early church were. It doesn't tell us anything about her interpretation of Isaiah. It doesn't say any of that. She helped me so much when I was working hard for the Lord. Just tell her I'm missing her, and I really want to see her. That's it. I think that's brilliant. Their worth and ours, in Paul's eyes, is found in the connection they have to the family they're part of, their connection to Jesus. That is a glorious thing. And our worth comes in our serving one another practically, financially supporting each other, parenting each other. And we all need a wee bit of that. Spiritually, building one another up, preaching and teaching and praying for one another, sending each other out to go and preach the gospel and telling each other we're doing well when we're doing well. And in serving one another, we glorify God in all we do. We're serving and worshiping Jesus when we do this. Paul is speaking to his family, to Jesus' family. But his family is not just a gathered group of similar people. It is a family centered on Jesus. He says in verse 17 through to 19 that he wants them to do something. It's not just that they want to to care for each other. They have to be centered on Christ. He says that they are to guard their unity carefully. Now, this is something that was of real interest to me when I was at Bible college. You spend a lot of time reading church history at Bible college, which is good, and I would encourage you to read church history. There's loads of great resources, not at, at sort of academic level, but at at entry level to read church history, and we really desperately need to read it. Because one of the biggest problems the church had in its early years 
was not theological disagreement. That was a problem, and, and it's always been a problem in the church, and it always will be until Christ returns. But one of the biggest scandals wasn't theological arguments. It wasn't Christians or whole churches getting into really shocking sin, although that happened, and it was bad. One of the biggest problems, the biggest scandals in the early church was called schism. The breaking apart of fellowships. Not because you know, our fellowship has grown and there's a need for a church over there, so let's send 20 members to go and establish a new church over there, but the splintering of a church because they just can't get on. That was considered one of the most damning things in the early church, and people who were responsible for that were given the harshest penalties in the first centuries of the church. And the reason for that is passages like this. Paul is trying to get across to the early church, there is one family. I mean, that's what almost all of his letters are about. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. You don't get Jewish churches and Gentile churches. There's just churches. So deal with it. It doesn't matter if you're a Roman, you're a slave, you're free, you're male or you're female. You don't get different churches. There's one church. Sort your problems out and meet together to worship God. Because by saying there's different churches, you're saying that Christ is divided all over the place. And that he's specially with this little group over here, and maybe not with that one over there, or not as much. That's nonsense, Paul's saying. You're one family. So guard your unity well. Division is really dangerous. It makes it look like Christ is divided. It makes it look like God's Word can say contradictory things, and we're all believing God's Word, but we're all believing different things. This is no good at all. You cannot be a Christian in isolation. It can't be done. I've heard people all through my life talk about how they're, they're not a member of any church. They just float around. They're members of the universal church. This is drivel. It is people saying, I don't want to be accountable to other Christians. I'm not interested in anyone else looking at my life and perhaps telling me where I've got things wrong, as well as taking me where I've, telling me where I've got things right. We must be connected to the family of God. We must be. Because there is one Christ. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, as we're going to read a little later in our service. And the idea that we can just go alone will lead to the death of that particular congregation of God's people. Because you need people who are different to you, who see the world differently. I love the fact that we have a variety of people within our fellowship who've come from all sorts of different places and backgrounds and church traditions in some cases. Because they ask really awkward questions about why we're doing things. Why do we do it that way? That's a silly thing to do it that way. Why don't we do it this way? Have we thought about X? And maybe it doesn't come from the Baptist tradition in Scotland, but that's a great thing to ask those questions. And they'll never be asked if we're all the same. The church grows as different people congregate together and bring all of their differences in Christ to the church. We need mothers and fathers in the faith. We need patrons and evangelists and deacons and Sunday school teachers and carers and bakers and tea and coffee servers and cleaners and maintenance people. We need all of that. We have to have all of that. And if we work together, 
the church grows stronger, and if we don't, and disunity creeps in, the whole thing stops working, and we turn around in five or ten years' time and ask, what happened to the church? It's just disintegrating and falling apart all over the place. But Paul says, note, that we don't just stay together at all costs. It's not simply for the sake of being together. He says, and it's almost laughable what Paul says, that we stay together by really focusing on good doctrine. Now, I don't know how often I've heard, well, doctrine divides. We, we, we can't be focused on, uh, on, on all believing the same thing about this or that or the next thing because it just causes division between people. We should just love one another. That's how the church stays together. Paul says, of course you've got to love each other. But if you're not loving each other around the same thing at the core, then what are we doing? Doctrine has to be at the center of this. The God that you worship must be known in your midst. Who you are must be known. What you're here for must be known clearly. Otherwise, we're going to be missing the mark all over the place, and we won't know. He says, don't listen to people who are teaching something other than what the apostles have taught you. What he's talking about, we would now look back and say, is the New Testament, what the apostles taught. He's saying you must hold to this, and anyone who comes to you with the cleverest of sounding philosophies and theologies, if it isn't coming from Scripture, if you can't find it anywhere in here, then you don't listen to a word they have to say. It doesn't matter how clever they sound, how good and right that thing sounds. We could transform the church if we did that. It doesn't matter. You unite yourselves around the teaching of Scripture that speaks to who Jesus is. Because nothing else will hold the church together. Christ holds the church together. We're His people. We've been bought by His blood. Our punishment is paid out on Him when He's broken on the cross. And if He is the one who saved us, He is the one who must sit at the center of it all. So Paul says, hold the sound doctrine. Be obedient. That is central. Because if you're not then the church is going to be all over the place. We're going to break apart, and that is when things will go bad very, very quickly. Something which is merely mentally stimulating or academically interesting, a sort of a hobby religion, isn't going to hold you together because there are going to be difficult times. We've just gone through two years of really quite stressful time as a church, as a society, but as a church. And it's been great to see how the churches all hung together, phoned one another, fed each other, listened to each other, prayed for one another, met each other when possible, visited in homes and in hospitals and so on. It's been great to see that because it's not a hobby. It's something that is at the very core of who we are as men and women. It is implanted deeply within us and it leads to our being united despite the fact we're all different ages and stages and, and views on all sorts of things. Being nice to each other isn't necessarily being a Christian. And being nice isn't enough to hold people together when persecution and difficulty comes. And Paul's already pointed out that their obedience is well known in the church at Rome, all over the world, in the non-Christian world, but he wants them to make sure they don't forget. Because it's just one generation. The church is always one generation from falling to bits as one generation assumes that we all believe this, we don't need to talk about it all the time, then the next generation knows nothing of that. And all of a sudden, the church has wandered away off the beaten track into some other novelty somewhere, and there's almost always no coming back for the vast bulk of that church. 
Doctrinal soundness is something that can be lost very, very quickly if it's not constantly worked at, taken in, and as Paul says, lived out. Obedience is key. If you don't live it, you don't really believe it. It's not really that important to you. And so, the church is to unite together around what they believe about Jesus and to actually live it out in their midst and in the world around them. And the church, as a result, grows strong. It grows together. And it testifies to who Jesus is and what God's done. And Paul says in verse 20 that the family of Christ, Paul's family, triumphs through Christ as a result. The church was struggling in Rome. It was small. It was relatively insignificant. It was bigger than churches elsewhere. It probably had a lot more money than churches elsewhere and and so on. But it was going really hard, and it was only going to get harder as persecution really began to ramp up through this century and especially into the next two centuries um, that followed. Satan was at work in the culture, turning it into a culture of death, and Rome wasn't all that far from collapse. A few centuries down the line, the Western Roman Empire disintegrated completely because the whole thing had become about me and me getting what I want. Not about society, not about the betterment of the people around us, me, all about me. And so the whole thing fell apart completely. And Paul is concerned that as persecution rises, as Satan is at work in the culture, that culture might seep into the church, as it always does, as it's doing today. And he was pressing the church to get them to run to one another and to care for one another, to live for one another, so the church didn't bring itself down from the inside. Paul tells them, keep moving forward. Don't stop. Don't give up. If you keep going together, the God of peace will come to your rescue, and he will crush Satan. Isn't that great encouragement for a church that's struggling under the weight of persecution and difficulty and perhaps a little bit of infighting? Satan is doing this, but he's, God's going to deal with it. God will crush him. Fantastic. How's God going to do that, though? What does Paul say? He doesn't say God is just going to reach down from heaven and just crush him. He says he's going to do it under your feet. He's going to do it through the believers in Rome. It's an astonishing thing to say. If you keep going together, Satan will be crushed under your feet. He will use you to show the world that things can be done differently, and not just differently, better in a way that lines up with who you are as a human being. People will see as they look at you, it can be done a better way. Living not for yourself, living for other people, living for God is better than satisfying all your own desires. People can see there's something true to this church's teaching. The way they see the world just seems to fit so much better than the way the politicians keep telling me, the way my neighbors keep seeing things. I just just don't see it that way, and they make sense. People will see their only hope lies with God rather than their own strength. As yet another famine sweeps through the empire, another plague or pestilence, another war with another people group has all of our sons marching off and never coming back. They will see that there is a greater hope than simply doing the way things the way they've I been done. And they'll see it all through this tiny little group of really insignificant, different, but together people. 
Because there's nothing else like this anywhere. How do you do this? How do you keep going? How have you survived? Never mind keep growing year on year, blessing the poor, feeding them, clothing them, and doing all the things our politicians should be doing, but just never get round to doing because they're just lining their own pockets. Through the sound and settled unity of God's people, Christ will conquer, Paul says. So keep going. Keep growing. Keep loving. Keep building up because you're doing great. Success for Paul's family isn't based on how well or how hard they work together. It's based on how closely they're tied to Jesus. Because whenever they do things because of that, they're doing great. So just keep going. It's interesting to note that as Paul ends his letter, he turns to his family. He's talked about great theological truths and and fundamentals of who we are as a people and, and so on. But he turns to his family. And he loves them. You can read the warmth in his words. It's the people he loves most in the world. Some of them he's never even met. He's just heard about. They're one in Christ. There's no question. He loves them. He must. Christ loves them. They're one family, Paul says, and he's grateful they're striving along together with him because whatever happens, nothing will stop the church when they do that. It will be triumphant. The church will grow. It will flourish. The kingdom of God will come and cover the earth, as Jesus said. And the normal makeup of the church is the means by which God will see this done. Isn't that astonishing how powerful God is that you can do that? In first century Rome, 21st century Livingston, it makes no difference. Let us love our family. Let us stay centered on Christ here. Let's triumph over the world, sin, and Satan here, together with Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this church. We give you thanks for all churches, Lord, that are truly grounded upon Christ. But Lord, we thank you for one another. We thank you for the love that we've shown to each other over the last two years of lockdown and for decades back beyond that to the beginning of this church here in Livingston. Lord, we thank you for the love we experienced this morning when we came in and we greeted one another warmly and we asked how we were getting on and assured each other that we would be praying for one another and caring for each other and thought just this morning that I'm going to put it in the diary this week to to make a note that I'm going to give somebody a call. I'm going to tell them how much I care for them and how much we're missing them. Lord, I thank you for our church, the ordinary, everyday life of our church. Because as ordinary as it is, this is the means by which you will conquer this world. So Lord God, we ask that you would build us up and strengthen us. You would have us love each other and hold each other to sound doctrine. And in being united together around Christ, you might lead us on. Lord, we thank you for each member of this fellowship. Lord, we confess there are some people that we haven't got on with in the past. There are maybe some people we're not getting on with right now. We know there are going to be some people we won't get on with in the future, and yet we are all one in Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask that that would be preeminent over all things. Lord, we're not called to be nice to each other. We're not called to like each other. We're called to love each other. And so we ask, Lord, that you would have us continue in that way into the future. Lord, bless us strengthen us and build us up. And we ask it all, Lord, that you would be glorified in our midst. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.